everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the TetraCast. This is RPG Sites Weekly Podcast, where we get the site staff together to talk about video games. I'm your host. My name is Brian Vitali. Joining me, we have Josh Torres. Hello. Adam Vitali. Hello. And Chowman Wu. How's it going? Uh, we will see if James decides to join us or not. We'll just tag him in if he shows up. Otherwise, we'll just proceed. Uh, we are recording this on February 17th, 2024. We are halfway through a very busy month with a lot of big games looming on the horizon. And we've had a couple uh, pretty sizable releases in the last seven days. So uh, we're going to be talking about uh, two new games, or actually one new game and one new game DLC at the starting part of this podcast. And then we'll go into um, some news for some upcoming uh, updates and trailers for the back half of the month and over into March and the rest of the year. So starting out, the RPG new release of this week is Banishers Ghosts of New Eden. We've talked about this, of course, as we've covered it going into its release cycle and eventual release of the game. And without further ado, I'll just hand the proverbial microphone over to Adam to talk about this game. Maybe tee us up again for those that weren't, you know, watching all the trailers line by line about what this game is and your time with it so far. I mean, not so far. You finished it, but you've been covering it for us and uh, wrote up a review for us in this game. Yeah. So regular listeners of this podcast, if you listen to every episode, first of all, thank you. Um, (laughs) Last year ahead of the release of Vanishers, which at the time, which was originally scheduled to come out in November before it was delayed, I played Vampire. I played it a few months ahead of time. So these are RPGs from the French studio Don't Nod. And if that name's not familiar to you, this is the studio they're probably most well known for Life is Strange, the original two games. They didn't do the most recent game, but they they, they were the developers behind um, the Life is Strange series the first two published by Square Enix. Before that, they actually played, rem- or they actually developed Remember Me, which I think I saw you playing a long, long time ago. Um, but in I any case... I remember it, but yeah. <laughs> any case, uh, so Vampire was actually one of their earlier games, and that was a, an action RPG set in like Victorian-era London um, featuring vampires. And that was actually a pretty big success for them. Selling more than 2 million copies in its lifetime. It ended up getting a late Switch port and all that. And so Banisher's Ghosts of New Eden is basically the follow-up to that. Um, I'm assuming it's similar staff in the studio and whatnot. I haven't looked deeply into the credits. But it's basically... If you have followed any of Don't Nod's, um, like, uh, investor relations, uh, financial statements, and things like that, they were, they were very pleased with vampire success, and they basically have decided, we are going to go in on RPGs uh, and these sorts of games because we think these games are successful. And that's basically where Banishers comes from, is a follow-up to Vampire, um, and it's... I have to imagine this is their biggest budget game yet, and it was delayed from last year, and it released last week. Now, Banishers is not as... It doesn't... It's not as easy of a game to describe as vampire where vampire is just like vampire rpg that's all you need to know um banishers is like ghost rpg it's like sort of um so anyways the premise you're set this is set in the late 17th century um you have you the the main characters in this game are a duo it's a pair of characters red mcwraith and antea duarte and they are what are known as banishers they're 
basically their profession is to solve curses, uh, put souls to rest, and even fight the undead, uh, hence banishers. And they basically get communication from a friend in the New World uh, across the ocean in a settlement called New Eden, basically saying there's a curse here and there's some issues and we need you to come basically solve it. Hence the title of the game, Banishers, Ghosts of New Eden. And so they head to this place and the curse there, long story short, is much more severe than they thought it could possibly be. There, There is in this settlement what is called a nightmare, like the classic nightmare, which is basically a very vengeful ghost haunting the dreams of the people, the settlers. And it's a very dangerous, tangible entity that ultimately ends up killing Antea. She dies. Um, and that's the hook of the game, is that you have two characters, one who's still alive, Red McWraith, and one who is now a ghost, uh, Antea Duarte. And that's more or less the premise of the game in terms of you are a ghost hunter, but now you have become what you have hunted your entire life. And so you basically have two uh, objectives. One, you still have to solve this curse. Like, what is going on here? And, you know, have this settlement back to its, you know, non-dangerous ways. And then the other thing is you have to decide... Uh, what are you going to do with Antea, her ghost? Uh, you learn early on that you can. You basically have two options. One, you can go through a sort of uh, a heretical ritual to revive her or let her go on peacefully. And that's basically like what all of your choices in the game sort of anchor on is what you want to do with Antea's ghost. And so the game itself, after this sort of opening sequence you basically head off into the world of New Eden, like the settlement and sort of like the outlying areas of the game. And let me put it this way. I, I come away from this game mixed. There are parts about it that I really like, and there are parts about it that I really don't. And I know it might sound just kind of boring, um, but I really feel that in this case, that there are things about this game that I think this is excellent. This is really, really good. And this is the reason to play the game. And then there are things that I just kind of honestly don't like at all. Um, I'll start with the positives, then I'll go to the negatives and then we'll loop back around. So I really like the characters in this game. I really like the dialogue in this game. I really like the NPCs. I like who you meet. I like the voice acting, which is done by Side UK. And everything about like the narrative and the characters and the, uh, you know, the storyline, the storytelling and the kind of the quest stories of this game are all very good, which is maybe not too surprising considering Don't Nod's pedigree. But that was really what I came away from Banishers really high on was, you know, the relationship between your two characters which I forgot to mention, not only are they partners in this banishing banishers business, but they're also lovers. Two, all the NPCs that you meet, they're all very interesting. And how the game is set up is that you are banishers of ghosts. And when you the side quest in this game, the NPCs that you meet, they are kind of they are referred to as haunting cases. And what that is is that you usually have just by the very nature of this game, you have an NPC that's an alive, and then like some NPC that is related to them in some way that is dead, haunting them for some reason. And so 
one of the things that is on display in pretty much every facet of this game is the relationship between NPCs and this sort of theming about death, about letting go, about, you know, life and the sorts of relationships that people have they come in all sorts of shape, all sorts of shapes and sizes you have lovers you have siblings you have parents and child you have rivals you have just people who hate each other or sisters or what have you and just kind of meeting all these characters and how they uh interact and learning about their regular lives on this in this settlement it's all very done very well now if you remember when i was talking about vampire several months ago this is also one of the things I liked about Vampire was how the NPC in Vampire specifically there was sort of like this map or this web of NPC relations and uh, relationships and learning more about NPC backstories and their characters and whatnot and that actually in that game fed into the games like RPG and AXP and uh, EXP systems and I really liked that so that sort of translates here in a way. Um, you know, there's there's no EXP related to this, really, in terms of, like, the vampire systems, of course. But just everything about, like, meeting the characters and the, the stories, the storylines behind all that is very good. Very memorable characters. But flipping around to what I didn't like about the game, it feels much more typical than vampire. And what I mean by that is, what are you doing when you're not, like, talking to NPCs? You're sort of exploring the world. You're looking, you're you're uncovering the map. It's sort of this zone-based design and you're uncovering like uh, chests. You're uncovering little like challenges, like battle challenges to fight waves of, of enemies. You're, you're finding little totems that give you stat ups. You're finding um, little like items that can unlock, you know, these specially locked chests. You can find these kind of collectibles throughout the world that going literally into a checklist that you fill out and this just all felt very typical to me first of all i've been talking for a while any questions or are you guys intently listening i i, I have a question saying. about the story um you mentioned it early on first of all no i just think you teed that up very well which is why we're just letting you talk but yeah. about the about the decision making between the mm -hmm. antia the character one of the two playable antagonists yeah. is antia uh is you mentioned that you want to make a decision about whether they um, pass on or whether they're resurrected. And mm -hmm. basically, without knowing the framing of that decision, almost always when a story touches upon the topic of resurrection, usually, I'm sure there are specific cases that go the opposite way, but usually resurrection is doesn't come at, it comes at a great cost. We're usually the best right, moral, whatever option is to let them pass on. That's the natural course. That's the way things should be. Versus resurrection is amoral. It comes at a cost. It's not right. It's unnatural. And that's not the correct option. Does this game frame it like that? Or does it frame it differently? And then what does Antea want? Is she saying, like, please revive me? Or is she saying, please let me go? Um, okay. So this is one of the things about the game that I'm more mixed on. Um, so... First of all, like the game itself, Antea doesn't really like outwardly say like this is what I want to happen. It's more like a dialogue that you sort of initiate between the two characters, and you basically decide. You have Red make the decision, and then like Antea kind of I guess sort of tags along with whatever the decision is. Um, I think that's sort of done intentionally just to make it make sure basically say like you can do either option. It's not like you're going against her wishes or anything like that. 
Um, but so those those haunting cases that I mentioned earlier, and again, haunting cases are basically side quests. That's that's just how side quests are framed in this game. The storylines, the storytelling between the characters are all good and sometimes even moving, but the mechanical like structure of them, I'm a little bit more mixed on. So at the end of every haunting case, you make a decision, uh, like clockwork. So at the end of every haunting case, you basically have two options. Uh, I'm, this is kind of uh, simplifying it a bit, but you basically can either A, let the ghost of the haunting case, the ghost part of the equation, you can either basically ascend them or banish them, let them basically like, in a nutshell, like stop haunting this living person, you need to pass on now. Um, or sometimes, in some cases, the person who's still alive is a jerkwad, and basically that is the cause of lingering resentment from the ghost. And so it's like really the living person's fault that the ghost is still around, not the ghost's fault. And so in some cases, you may want to, okay, the ghost, they're not to blame here, the living person is, and you can blame them. Blaming is the framing they use. And that literally kills them. So you can kill people, and that basically lets the is ghost it, is it that move on. and dry where you you always blame someone results in their death? Yes. Um, uh, let me I, I, let me just pull up a screenshot while I'm talking here. Uh, but uh, you make this decision at the end of every case. And the thing is, and this is what I'm a little bit mixed on, is if you are decided, if you are leaning towards, I want Antea to be revived, that ritual requires the death of people. Now, if you want Antea to move on, that ritual doesn't strongly require, but for that ritual, you want to let ghosts pass on, like other ghosts. So what that's I have a, I have a, hold on. Sorry, sorry. I have a no question on like the, the, this, uh, this, the, these options. It's like theoretically, like so, you're learning more about the haunting cases to make a, an informed decision. But say that you're already like committed to like one quote unquote route over the other. Though, what it be like? You're just kind of like speed running the case just to get to the decision to make a decision, and then you basically on made what I was going to said what I was going to say okay. for me. Okay, and that okay. um you that's sort of the issue that i run into here is that like let's just say you'd basically decided all right i want to revive antea so that means i need to kill people so you get to these people in this haunting case and you basically have already decided before you even met them i'm going to kill that guy <laughs> and it's just it's it sort of in a way like reminds me of like mass effect now there's nothing in mass effect that says you have to play like this and same with banishers Whereas in Mass Effect, I feel like most people, when they play Mass Effect, they're like, you, you say to yourself, I'm going to play a renegade, renegade character or a Paragon character. So when you get and to it, those renegade... benefits too. There's yeah, when you get to those too. renegade and Paragon options, you aren't actually making a decision in that moment. You're just saying, oh, well, I'm going to pick the Paragon option because I'm a Paragon character. You know? And then that also ties into like the mechanics skill, of the game, yeah. right? So... Um, yeah, yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna link a screenshot here. So just kind of give you guys a visual. So like literally at the end of the case, you get a choice between blaming the living person or ascending or banishing the dead person. And listeners as well, like you can see the screenshot and and I think this part of your in your review, yes, right? It is. Like this one. So this and is it, it even again. says in the screenshot. This decision will contribute to Antea's resurrection, since a resurrection ritual will only work if the largest numbers of settlers are sacrificed. So it literally basically says, do this for route A, do this for route B. 
Now, maybe the whole thought process here is to kind of show you the consequences of your decision. Like, if you're going to re want to revive Antea, these people have to die. And it's kind of just showing you this is the consequence of what you decided to do, which is, I don't know, fair. But as far as like the decision making goes, you've kind of already made your decision before you even start the haunting case. Now, again, just sort of like Mass Effect, there's nothing in the game that says you have to be all or nothing. You could just, if in certain cases, just choose individually. Well, I don't, in this case, I'm going to blame the living person because they're an asshole. And in this case, I'm going to, you know, ascend the ghost because they're just, um, they need help passing on from their living bodies. So you could just play it more organically like that, but that's the game is not like framed like it, that. It, it depends on like is there a gameplay benefit to like going committing nope. to like a quote unquote route in this nope. game? So like I think that's the, that's the thing with Mass Effect, right? Like that's true. people usually committed to Paragon or Renegade because they saw like you know like an end of tree skill, or they saw a video of someone using that skill. It's like hey, that skill looks sick as fuck. I want my character to do that. So. They committed to one of those because it would feed experience into getting that skill. I don't remember if Mass Effect so, had like skills tied to uh, routes. I think it might have some equipment. Oh yeah, it might remember. have been equipment. Yeah, it might have been that. But it's it's definitely one of those like weird things of like I, I guess I guess factoring in part of the equation is like is there like a, a tangible gameplay benefit of banishers? It seems like not. No. So. You know, but just this is maybe just where it comes just to personal preference. Yeah. Like I personally prefer games like off the top of my head, Wasteland Three, where Wasteland mm -hmm. Three has a lot of choices you make in that game, but you're not like aiming for an ending or anything like that. You're just basically making choices case by case, quest by quest, character by character. Like I want to do this for this character, I want to do this for this person, for this town. Whereas in this game, just the fact that everything is framed as you do this for resurrection, you do this for uh, basically ascension, it never quite worked for me. It, just the fact that it's so like uh, signposted in terms of which choice leads to which route, and it's just that's just a preference thing. I don't really care. Yeah, for. but I I, uh, I understand. Yeah, what I was getting to before uh, we kind of got to this topic about the choices in the game. Yeah. Um, which I don't think are terrible. I think it's mixed. And again, I still really like the storytelling of the characters outside of that. Um, the part about the game that I'm most disappointed in is just sort of like outside of the Haunting Case side quest and outside of the storytelling, like what you're actually doing in the game. Like if you were to open a stream of someone streaming this game, what are they doing? Like what's the most likely thing you're going to see? They're probably going to be exploring a zone, uh, looking for uh, points of interest on the map, and opening like chests and doing, you know, little mini puzzles to get like a locked chest open, which has a new piece of equipment or something. Or maybe there's a little, there's a little uh, point on the map that summons a few waves of enemies, where if you do that, you can get a little small bonus for that. And this part of the game just felt so like typical to me. Just like exploring the map, checking off the little, you know, there's literally a checklist in the game about like the little things you can do on each map. And that to me just kind of got like boring. And mm -hmm. that was actually a little bit like Vampire, the previous game, didn't really have anything like that. Uh, Vampire was more like constrained in the city, more based on like the the character relationships and the things like and things like that. Um, where this game kind of adds that whole exploration part to the game. And I just kind of feel like 
it does not the game or or the developer's strong suit. And that doesn't even get to the combat of the game, which is fine. It's not broken, but it's not great. It's adequate. It's unexciting. The, con- the, the combat in the game is an action RPG. It's similar to Vampire if you played it, in that you have a heavy attack, you have a light attack. Uh, there is a parry system in the game, although it was never very satisfying for me. Um, and there's a sort of rhythm you can have in the game where you toggle between the two characters, Antea and Red. And at first, this was promising to me because Red is base a, a, a typical action RPG character. You have health. You have uh, sort of a stamina where you you do your attacks. Uh, if you do them in certain orders, you can do a slight different uh, basic combos of the game. And then when you switch to Antea, Antea being a ghost doesn't have a health bar. She instead gets like it's sort of like a stamina meter. I forget what they call what they call in game. But what, how it basically works is this. This is about as much into the weeds as I'll go. When you attack with red, you fill up Antea's meter. And then when you switch to red, you drain Antea's meter. So what that means is you're sort of like incentivized to toggle between the two characters, um, filling her meter and draining her meter as you use her. And um, by doing certain, by switching between the two characters in certain spots, you can do stronger attacks or different combos. And at first I thought, oh, this is kind of interesting. You know, uh, I'll stop you there. And I'd say the way you describe it, that sounds yeah, like fundamentally sound. That sounds interesting and kind of like it forces you to switch up. You can't just camp one character. Mm-hmm. So I'm waiting for the other shoe to drop it. The way you described it sounds good. Yeah. And it's, it, it is fine. The thing is, the part that's kind of disappointing to me, there's two parts. One is that rhythm and like there is very, very little progression in the game as far as this goes. A lot of the progression in the game is like do slightly more damage uh, with your strong attack or do slightly more damage with Antea or take slightly less damage from enemies. And so like there's a lot of passive like percentages that kind of get altered depending on what you equip and your skill tree in the game. But what your actual like combos and things themselves rarely change. So from hour one to hour 40, it's about a 34 hour, 40 hour game the actual like change in what you're how you approach battle barely changes so it kind of just gets stale over time and what kind of compounds this and this is actually this sounds like a nitpick but it's honestly one of the biggest issues in the game i feel is that this game desperately desperately needed better enemy variety all right let me count them all right we're counting here one you have your normal specters normal aspectors two you have your fast specters they're faster Three, you have your shooty specters. They shoot stuff. Okay, we're at three enemies, right? Then you have kind of big versions of each of those. Okay, mm. so it's still basically three enemies. Then you have armored versions of three of those. Okay, so still basically three enemies. Then you have giant oh, no, wait, specters. Wait, 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 wait. Go ahead. I was going to say, are there big armored ones? No. There's big ones and there's armored ones. Are there big armored Okay, no. <laughs> go on. But there, there is a giant specter, which is a bit different from the big ones. So that's four. I'm counting. That's four enemies. You have specters, fast specters, shooty specters, and you kind of have like two different variants on each of those. And then you have the giant specters. And then you have wolves and armored wolves and big wolves. That's really like five enemy types. And then the only other thing I can say is sometimes those armored specters will have a slightly different weapon. Like sometimes they'll have like a scythe, like a farming scythe, and sometimes they'll have like a broadsword. So they're like, they, they their animations are slightly different. And I'll, you know, I'll 
that's basically what it is just on its face so but you more or less fight them in the same way and that's basically it as far as regular enemies go and it's just especially over the course of a 30 to 40 hour game it just gets really old fighting the same enemies doing the same combos over and over again and and that kind of combined with this sort of typical exploring the world checking off your things on the map um with the combat barely barely changing the uh the the uh enemies always the same from the beginning to the end it just kind of got stale and that's the part of the game i dislike most and that was actually it's even more disappointing in a way because um those are things that were issues with vampire also this uh, if you if you go back to 2018 and read kyle's review on the site kyle reviewed it for us he actually said the same thing that the combat doesn't change much and there's low enemy variety so the fact that six years later i'm basically saying the same things is a little disappointing um i know they're like not set in the same world so all the new assets are all the assets are new and everything's new and you know it's not like they could have just added to it obviously but still it's just kind of it's very disappointing and this is i'm gonna call it a pet peeve of mine but I consider this one of the cardinal sins of RPG design, specifically boss design. I mm. really don't care for bosses where the boss design just summons regular enemies, and that is the boss design. I don't care for that design at all. I call it the Mook Squad in my head. That's my <laughs> head cannon, the Mook Squad, where the boss basically just summons a wave of regular enemies for you to fight, and that's what you do. And I don't mind if maybe, like, one boss does it and if it like makes sense for that boss to do it because they're i don't know a commander or something but there's like i feel like almost every boss in this game has that design where they you do you get a few hits on the boss and then they basically become like untargetable for a while as you take care of regular enemies for a while and it just kind of it's reused over and over again i'm trying to count off the top of my head there's the beast there's the cave boss there's the the island boss there's the uh the the void boss there's so many bosses that do this and it just kind of what this sort of tells me is that like okay you designed a combat system but you didn't design a boss you just basically just took the combat system you designed and just kind of are substituting that in for a boss fight now i will say that the final boss doesn't do this and the final boss is probably the best one because of this or contributed by that but still it's just like i really don't like this mook squad boss design and that's something that vampire also did so just these facts that these things that are kind of annoying me about vampire are also annoying me here maybe even more so is just kind of disappointing what were you saying now are the are the mooks the same variety of creatures that you just went over yep. or are they the like specters the wolves okay. the giant specter sometimes yep <laughs> are the bosses summoning the mooks unique at least some of them are um some of them are just like one of the bosses is basically like the the armored specter but bigger <laughs> i mean that's oh, that's a little bit reductive but it's you know they're just a big armored specter with a weapon and they are the boss themselves that you fight here and there is relatively unique but they do spend much of their fight just summoning the regular guys that you have to take care of first um uh, you, I think you actually saw me stream this boss, Brian. There's like a boss in the cave that's like a really big, like chain to the wall specter. Oh, and I um, remember that one was in one of the trailers, and it's yeah. it's it's a it's it's kind of it's good imagery, like it's yes, a good design, it is. kind of it a is. fun boss. So that boss is kind of half and half, where like 
that boss will very occasionally like shoot like waves of like ghost dust at you or like slam their big hand down on the on the on the battlefield that you got to avoid but that boss also spends a lot of their time just summoning specters to basically pester you and it's just kind of i don't know it just feels like a crutch to me now again maybe you're totally fine with this sort of boss design but i just think this over reliance on it it's just annoying to me but uh so again i guess uh wrapping up here maybe more or less that's the uh my takeaway uh i really like this game's characters and story there's actually a moment in the game on the island uh between characters their names are seeker and ceridian that i think are really nice and um just judging by other reviews of this game it seems like uh, sometimes, you know, when we do reviews, sometimes you feel like you're on an island uh, with your opinion. But it seems like a lot of people are really fond of, like, the characters and storytelling in this game. And that is what I would call the strong suit or the reason to play. It's just that, I, in a way, the game itself, it's more polished than Vampire. It looks better than Vampire. It's probably less glitchy than Vampire. It's probably uh, Don't Nod's most expensive game. Uh, but I almost feel like it's more traditional, more typical. And in a way, that's actually a little bit more disappointing than Vampire, which felt more unique. Um, I like the storytelling. The combat is kind of fine if stale and stagnant. And the world design is typical. And I have some mixed thoughts about how the questing and the, uh, the, uh, the choice and consequence works. I'll say this. Apparently, there are five, ending to the, five endings to this game. That's from Don't Nod themselves. Don't Nod themselves. Now, I can kind of think of three endings off the top of my head. One, revive Antea. Two, let Antea go. Three, I presume there's an ending if you try to revive her, but you didn't do it properly. Now, I'll just say, I got, when I played through the game, I got the revive and the ascend ending. I, I did some save manipulation and got both. So I saw both of those endings. I'm assuming there's a like a failure ending, I'm guessing. I'm actually not sure what the other two would be, according to like Don't Nod's, they say they have five. I don't know if it's maybe just like a slight variation depending on something, but I just wanted to mention that because maybe there is something a little bit more nuanced that I didn't see that wasn't evident to me and how the quests were handled and how it, you know, signposts this leads to revival, this leads to ascension. So maybe there's a bit more to it that I'm missing, but if there is, it's not, you know, extremely evident. I don't know, uh, like I don't know anything about the endings, but in my mind, I feel like one of those endings are like you yourself become a ghost <laughs> with your ghost wife, and you, just, you guys do ghost things together. I, I, like, we're not going to revive you, but I'm not going to live without you. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah, this this might kind of tie into that, but one thing I was wondering was you mentioned during the haunting episodes where if you blame the person, that helps with one of the endings. But if you don't blame the person, does that really help with the no. let her go on ending? It's kind of like one's a positive thing, like or positive in terms of like you gain yeah. progress towards an ending, where the other one is just kind of like the lack of progress, so therefore you're pushing yourself towards the other <laughs> so ending. So you almost feel like to hedge your bets, like, well, I'm just going to kill everyone, and then I can still pick either ending. Yeah, kind of. That's exactly <laughs> what I was saying. It's like, if you want her to go on you don't have to pick the option where you don't blame them you can yeah. just say please go on and uh, maybe yeah, so maybe, and maybe we're approaching this the maybe we're approaching this incorrectly where you don't have to be so hyper focused on the ending but it's just that's just kind of how the uh, the game frames itself like literally well, from like, the onset and in like the literal dialogue choices you pick 
So it's hard not to. And like you showed us, like the UI basically says like this, this will result with progress towards this ending, like very clearly explicitly stated to you. Yep. So, so that's in the front of your mind when you're making the choice. You're not thinking about what story did I just witness? Uh, you know, how, what are these characters presented to me over the last? I, let me assume a side quest takes 20 minutes, 30 minutes to do. Like, okay, instead of just making a decision here, the, the game has a thumbnail that says this choice does A and this choice does B. Which, which choice do you want to make? And like, uh, like uh, you know, obviously we can obviously put our blinders on and say, well, I'm going to make the choice that I would make truly role play here. And, you know, to hell with whatever the consequences are. But it takes a little bit of fortitude to do that, especially when the game presents itself so explicitly in the other direction. But so in, in short, you've really enjoyed your time with it, but with some just drawbacks where you were uh, hoping it would come together a little better. My suggestion if you're playing this game, if you decide to play it, is to like honestly just put it on an easier difficulty because I don't the the gameplay is not really the, the highlight and don't don't try to like exhaust the maps like you're just filling out a checklist just do the character quests like do the main story just play through it that way and because I, I think that's that's where you're gonna get the most out of this game uh, I know I didn't give like any examples of the different like relationships between characters but to be honest i don't really want to like say any of them because they're sort of like spoilers and i probably couldn't do it justice to how they're like presented in the game but like some of the character like relationships and npcs that you meet and basically the, like the uh the problems that they have both in their relationship and just being like settlers of this new world um they're just it's just very well written there's actually i'll be vague here there's a scene near the end of the game in like the fourth region of the game where you are okay i'll maybe give some details here you oh there's actually one more thing i want to mention now that i think about it it's actually a very important thing anyways rambling near the end of the game in one of the last regions of the game you meet someone who calls himself a demonologist and long story short you realize that they're just not a very good person and you you have the choice to basically off them because they are kind of a, a a dick and there's actually like this scene in the game in like this old like uh chapel where red mcwraith your main character is basically just outlining this guy's um basically his crimes and what he did and all that and it's like cathartic uh in that moment where he's basically like you did this you did this you are an ass blah 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 and it's just kind of like hell yeah and like it's rare to get you a game to like get you excited or amped up in th uh, moments like that um so, and that's just kind of just a very vague example of just like i think the game's storytelling and character writing is all very good now, one other, one more thing. This is the important thing that I just brought up that I really, really, really appreciate about this game is like the overall narrative, the curse, the nightmare. Like, what is that? Uh, I, I talked about, you know, re reviving Antea is sort of like one of the things you have to decide. But the other thing you're, 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 that you're figuring out here is this curse. Like, where did it come from? What is it about? How do you solve it? And this curse kind of slowly kind of materializes and comes into focus as you do these different quests throughout the game. And you sort of, you realize, I'm not going to spoil it, like, where did it stem from? Why did it happen? Who is, who is uh, basically responsible for it? And how do you solve it? And what I like about it is that it stays relatively constrained. One thing that I kind of don't like about a lot of RPGs, Japanese or Western or whatever, is that I feel like a lot of games, this, 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 the scale of things or the scope of things just escalates and escalates and escalates, sometimes to like the fate of a nation or the fate of a world uh you know world altering stakes but that's not the case here one thing i like about this game is that the curse 
is just for the settlement of New Eden. And what you learn about what happened here is just basically an event that happened within the settlement. It's not like a gigantic, great, you know, omnipresent evil or anything like that. It's just, you know, the results of actions and characters in this place. And the narrative stays constrained, but believable. And like, it's, I just really like its restraint on its scope and how it resolves. And it's relative, it stays like relatively low key in the end. And Vampire is similar here too. And I appreciate that. I just appreciate that. It reminds me of games I played last year. Like, this is a very weird comparison, like Hodelka. It takes place just in a, in one mansion, relatively yeah. constrained, just with one conflict here in one place. It kind of reminds me of that. And I really, really like how this game approaches that and resolves that. And that's where I'll leave it. Well, I, I don't most, want to say more most, than that. Most, this, I'm saying this as a person who does not write for a living. So this is my like layman's kind of, you know, consumerist viewpoint, but writing a small scale story like that just seems like it would be inherently far more difficult and require a much greater degree of like skill or maybe a different sort of skill frame it like that, because you, when it's a world altering stake, it's kind of straightforward to put yourself in a position where you have motivation for why you're doing what you're doing because you're saving the world or you're saving a person or, or something like that. Where if it's a smaller scale stake, You've really got to have a lot of strong character writing to kind of motivate to to see it through to the end uh, in that way. And, you know, I think of like Disco Elysium and not again, not maybe. Right. Disco is that's also a very like, good point, a very good example. Yeah. So and that just seems like um, I've not played Vampire, but I did play Remember Me. And even though my memories of that are foggy, uh, one of that that sort of story is tailored to the studio's strengths. So it's kind of cool to see that it has been manifested here as well and kind of presented you a story that you don't see in a lot of other RPGs, um, at least not the big scale ones. So no, I could easily cool see there, cynical yeah. people getting to the end of the game and saying, that's it. And my response to that would be like, yeah, that's it. <laughs> like, that's the conflict. And I just think it's well done mm -hmm. the way that they approach it. Mm -hmm. So No, that's, 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 a, that's a fun little... Uh, uh, recount of that. But thank you, Adam, for going over your time and impressions for Vanishers, Ghosts of New Eden. Uh, we do have Adam's written review up on the site, as well as you have a, a handful of kind of some guide checklisty. Yeah, all the collectibles, all the checklisty stuff. That's the stuff I don't really so like. You're missing two things. I'm missing two you're things. Like, you're like, I suggest not doing this, but... Hey, I had to write it for guide purposes, okay? The, there you go. And uh, we're going to go on to our second game of our game talk section here. But before we do that, we'll just say uh, welcome to the podcast, James. It happened again. <laughs> no worries. Don't worry. I, I did uh, the same. I did the same. I closed mm -hmm. down Ask Libra and I look at the time. I was like, oh, shit. Ask Libra. Yeah, uh, that's the game we're talking about next, Chow. Very segue. Great segue. So, uh, we talked about either last week or the week before. We got the release date. I think it was last week for um, the Ask Libra DLC. Which has a subtitle that I'm forgetting. Uh, uh, Ask the Cave Libra of Gaiden, the Cave of Phantom Mist. The mm -hmm. So I know that Chow is clearly spending a lot of time playing this new add-on for Ask the Libra. And I know Adam's played it a little bit as well. I know Josh is also interested. I, have you started it yet? I, I've started it, but I'm not like too far in yet because I've been doing other stuff. But I, I, like, I have a good grasp of like what's going on in it as well. All right. So, nope, so it sounds like we've got three people here who at least can have some level of input on their time so far with 
the new Esther Libra content, but we'll hand it off starting out over to Chow, since you were off so late playing it. Uh, kind of tee us up for what this is and uh, what you've been enjoying or not enjoying about it so far. So this is supposed to be a side story that takes place somewhere in the middle of the game. Uh, basically, the heroes from the original game, they basically went on this quest to find like herbs or something, and they went to this cave of phantom mist and went missing. And you, as the baker's daughter, it's like, hmm, my sister's sick. She needs that medicine, like, no. And, you know, suddenly monsters start to attack the town for some reason because the hero still hasn't come back. And then she's suddenly able to kill the monster. And the dog, uh, Poland, which is a character that you meet pretty early in the, in the original game, but in the original timeline, the dog is dead. And later on, there's a timeline where the dog is alive. Anyways, it's that timeline. And the dog is like, hey, you can hear me? It's like, I think we're, we're connected somehow. I like it's how like, Poland introduces himself. He's like, hi, I'm a dog. Yeah, it's <laughs> like, I'm a talking dog. <laughs> very, very it's like every time when you meet someone, it's like, uh, this is nothing to be suspicious anyways, okay? I, I'm just a talking dog, okay? I, I, I guess I guess that the, the, for people who are interested in the base game of Ask the Libra Revision, like, just, just know that there might be light spoilers that we're going to mention here and there because it's hard to talk about this DLC without at least talking a little bit about the base it's, game as well. The game even says, but when you start up the DLC, it even says, like, explicitly, this might have spoilers for the main game. Like, it, yeah. You know, so, it, it, this game, uh, this, this DLC, you're expected to play after. Yeah, yeah but I don't, I don't feel it's too heavy a spoiler. No, it's not. I can't really it's mention like, anything yeah. without it. Yeah, it's a talking dog. Pretty... So, anyways, you're trying to find the heroes by going into this cave of Phantom Mist, which is kind of like this premise of this game, right? Uh, plot is pretty paper thin, but if there is plot, I actually do like whatever plot that is in this game. It, it's like that is definitely an ass lever moment right there, and you're like, "Yep." So I, I guess, like you know, to kind of provide context, like the, the the structure of this DLC is very, very, very different from like how you uh, how the base game is like. The base game is a pretty linear narrative adventure, very story driven. You're going to different places. Uh, constantly uh, in the base game, while in as to the this uh, DLC, the the only real place that you're going to is this cave of Phantom Mist, but it's structured in a way that's more like a roguelite, uh, a roguelike. Um, that and there's it kind of expands on the idea of like uh, something happens very late in As to Libra Revision, where it kind of has this light mode of this roguelike mode in the DLC, where you kind of venture to different stratums. And in this DLC, your level is reset every time you enter it. So you have to level up again in it. While in the base game, you were you were able to just like traverse it with all your uh, uh, progress and no level wipes stuff like that. so. It takes that concept from the base game and really expands and fleshes it out with different systems and progression uh, character progression systems uh, in this DLC. Um, um, I don't think your stats gain like that much from leveling ups in my opinion right so the whole roguelike is that you gather force crystals which is from like killing enemies like and that is used for that kind of like a dungeon crawler looking like seer grid looking thing from the original game and yeah. but to access it you have to go back home so you have like this risk and reward thing it's like should i keep pushing it but if i get killed i lose everything or well if you play on lower difficulties you don't lose everything but i i play in hell so you lose all your force crystals and there goes all your progress right so yeah like, yeah you, but, you know it's like i, I play in hell because that's kind of like oh like, 
I'm familiar yeah. with Dome game, so I'm, and, and, I'm sticking and, with Hell. Right? And in terms of like of like like how like well, and and just to like emphasize like there is a little bit of story here, but like the story is more about character interactions more so than like uh, an epic world changing tale of like you know things are happening in the world. It's not really. It's more of a it's more of a smaller scope thing. Um, where you kind of learn more about who the baker's daughter is because you didn't really see her much in the base game. Very te- tease, but not really. You don't really meet her in that game, and you get a little bit more. Learn more about like kind of the weird intricacies about her family. Um, a very very early game example that kind of shows like kind of the spirit of Astalibra in general is like how goofy this game is. The 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 like like Chow mentioned earlier the kind of the, one of the core reasons you're exploring this cave of Phantom Miss is your little sister is sick she's uh uh bed bedridden and uh eventually when you uh like meet like one of the early bosses as you traverse down this cave you come back and like your your sickly little sister becomes a shopkeeper where you can um buy scroll like skill scrolls um to earn new actions and you can also buy um, various like uh, equipment that you can use, like like range projectiles, for example. Like she's like ah, like one of the first interactions you have with her when she opens up the shop. It's like you can buy like the handy things here, like scrolls, blah blah blah, and even a shotgun. You're like, wait, what? Like you wh- like what do you what do you sell? So you go scroll to the bottom of the list, and sure enough, she sells crossbows, guns, shotguns. And you're like, all right, I guess. Yeah, you, you get a trophy for buying that pistol from your sister. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah, why does your sister have a gun? I don't know. She just, she just has... <laughs> I, I, okay, I the scroll it. makes sense. She said that uh, the hero gave her the scrolls, but the guns... Yeah, and it's, like, it's, a, it's very goofy like that. Like, and, and then uh, a little bit later on, you earn, uh, you, your other family members start becoming like shopkeepers. Like normally we know you used to like, you help around the, the house and you're, and you're, you're getting this for free. But now, you know, since you're actually like, you know, you have to go out, you're off to do something. We have to make some money back. So we're going to start charging you for like food uh, here around here. Okay. And you're like, there's fine. no discount either. It's fucking full price. Yeah. What kind of family is that? It's like, hey, want some cookies? It's ten dollars. It's like, wait, that's more than Walmart. Yeah, but I, I think, I think, um, I'll, I'll, I'll pass this off to you, Adam, in terms of like uh, progression on the Cave of Phantoms. It's a kind of like remixed le- biome levels from the original game. Like as you're traveling down, like you're you're kind of going through like the the Astley Hebrews memories. So yeah, so... a lot of the places that you're exploring, you've seen before in the base game, but remixed. Yeah, so this is a roguelike mode. Like, no edging around it. This is a roguelike mode of Astalibra. Now, the thing is, is Astalibra, we talked about it several times already. Uh, Chow mentioned it in his review. Uh, One of the best parts about Astalibra, at least in my opinion, are, like, its progression systems. And, like, you always feel like you're getting stronger, getting better equipment, getting new skills, getting new magic, getting new abilities. Uh, it has the growth system that's like really unique, and it's just no game is quite like Astalibra in that regard. And I think that's one of Astalibra's strongest suits. And so when you take all of that and you shove it into a roguelike mode, it actually works out really damn well, to be honest. And not only that, but it, it makes a couple of fun little twists on and alterations on like how you progress through your character through these modes. Um, so you're not really gaining experience like levels anymore because you always reset to level one like you, like you would in any roguelike. But you are still powering up your stats through skills and stuff. 
Um, one of the new systems, for instance, I always forget what it's called in the game. I think it's called Styles. Yeah. Uh, and that's basically like a class system, which sort of affects your... Uh, it affects your stat loadout as well as usually in, includes some like passive bonus. It usually has to do with, uh, it's, it's all very numbers based. Like if you're like one of the classes is swordswoman, which basically makes, makes swords like half as heavy, which that actually can mean a lot of things depending on your strength and speed stats in terms of how many hits you're getting in per swing and whatnot. Um, it's really good for like numbers nerds like us, to be honest. Uh, and so there's some really cool systems there that you're always progressing through. And these sorts of, uh, wrinkles in the in the like the the structure of the game and the in the in the uh the progression systems and all that these are the sorts of things i like to see in a dlc uh i'll make the strange comparison you may know i'm going with this already but a couple months ago i reviewed uh the dlc expansion for tales of arise sorry i know that was kind of out of nowhere maybe but like but beyond the dawn beyond the dawn right yeah. One thing I said about that and reviewed about that and said on this podcast is one thing I didn't like about that DLC was that it just was no different whatsoever from the base game. Not at all. Just the same mechanics, same everything, no wrinkle, no gimmick, no no alteration, no addition, no nothing. Um, whereas this is like a new structure completely, roguelike, with new mechanics, new systems, kind of tied in with all the old progression systems. And it makes it kind of, it makes it cool. It has like an interesting twist to it, an interesting, an interesting wrinkle. You're not, it is that roguelike structure where like the rooms are sort of randomized. You're kind of finding loot and whatnot. There's a new luxury, uh, or there's a new like, uh, uh, what's the word I'm thinking of? With, with Moiku, the pig guy. You can like the, gamble, the shopkeeper. Yeah, the luxury tickets or whatever they are to get. Uh, it's like it's like the gachapon system, but it's like yeah. it's kind of more expanded. Yeah, <laughs> and, and he will just... never give me the grand prize that jerk pig. All right, but I got anyways. them all. <laughs> but yeah, anyways, my point is is that I like generally speaking these sorts of expansions that take some mechanic or idea or structure from the original game and just you know rotate it a bit, twist it a bit, alter it a bit, add something, and it's cool. Um, yeah, and I also, I also really so, like the like part of like the first. I really like the 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 map, uh, how they draw the maps in this game. Like where it's like, very different. classic. Yeah, it's it's very classic. It's very easy to read. Of like color coded, this this room links to this room, so you always know like the way back because the the it has like really helpful colored lines of like where each like room to, uh, goes where you've already explored it or you haven't. And also, there's like mini game rooms where, like, sometimes you'll go into a room and it's just like colored balls, and you just like hit them for a limited amount of time to get like crystals for the grow system. Or like another one is like uh, like a, a target practice range where, like, if you hit these targets, you'll get treasure chests. And there's like very like little distractions to kind of break up like like ongoing battles. It's like, oh, I can do this thing here to kind of get some minor rewards, you know? It's just like it's 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 a nice different change of pace uh that you'll sometimes run across too it's like oh that's cool it's fun i was gonna say the crossbow do you get mm. the crossbow to do the target practicing that's the best when it comes in terms of rewards okay yeah. it took a while to get the bow for me so like the first time i got to that room it's like oh what can i do i don't have a bow just throw arrows at the balloons i think i i didn't have a bow in the year so i was like oh i just have to throw arrows here I, it's also that this this dlc is you can tell it's definitely geared for like as the libra veterans because like the child the average challenge level in this dlc is like it, it feels a, a substantially a step higher than the be- base game. i think it's easier than the base game 
Because really? I think yeah. that yeah, I, I actually think it's a lot easier in the base game. But the thing yeah. I was struggling the most was like the arena challenges because yeah, I think some of the arenas are. I tough. think we're missing yeah. some context here. Chow is not is being very humble and he's not telling everyone oh, yeah. he's playing on the hell difficulty. It's like, yeah, you're you're on hell difficulty and you're, and you're doing berserk build, so you're not like doing a normal. And, and meanwhile, uh, wimpy old me is on normal. Like, yeah. and, it's all, and also, you're playing like not on berserk, right? So for for, no. for context, um, berserk gamers that ask Libra. Are are very uh, they're the dangerous type of people. They they equip this berserk trait and they can they do triple the amount of damage, but they can die in one hit. But to bypass that, they equip they equip another uh, trait where they can when they enter like a new map or or thing, they can get hit once for free, and then everything else is fair game. So that's their lifestyle. You know that they're they're free to do what they want, but like. For normal people, you know, it might feel more difficult because of the way that it kind of designs uh, high the, the design risk, high reward, baby. Okay, yeah. Okay, so, okay. So basically, the the reason the reason why I say this game is a lot easier than the base game is because I I feel like this character, the Baker's daughter, has way better abilities than the original main character. You get magic. Magic is so OP in this. This main character, it, let's say you're not using Berserk, right? You can heal, which you can save up a lot of healing consumable items in, in this game because you don't need to, oh, I get hit, time to use a healing item like the original. Here it's just like, oh, I could just use a healing spell and just slowly regen all my HP. And then the magic is so good, you could hit the full screen and you get like invincibility where you can actually see the shield. While in the original, the main character had to use procession, which is like they transform into like some kind of creature to do the magic spell. And that invincibility barrier is kind of hard to see. But here you could actually like have a good timing on like when your invincibility barrier is gone, right? So I, I feel like it's easier than the base game. That's that's for me, right? Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. That, like, uh, I haven't gotten got far enough for it. Like, I saw all, like, I know, like, one of the early crazy magic abilities, like the Wind Cutter one, goes like it's an omnidirectional one. I definitely started like, abusing invincibility frames on that once I unlocked it. So, I, I probably just need to unlock better magic spells to kind of get a better feel. But like, from I, the get go, like, like, like when you start like doing early arena, it'll feel more challenging because you're, you're like, kind of, you don't have all the tools that like, you might want for those. Like I think they they cranked up the stats of the bosses that you see from Arena. Like for example, like the third boss from the original game. Yeah. Oh man, I I did not struggle with that at all in the original game. I feel like I just melted that carrot that boss right. But here it's like it takes forever to get through the heads to fight the real form. So I don't know. It's like they just cranked up the stat because they find that boss was underwhelming in the original or something. But it's like that. So in terms of like like how this game like how long is it? Did you did you finish this chow? I did not, but this is a dense package. I, I would believe it's probably about twenty five hours long. Uh, I, I found a secret boss yesterday, and you kind of like instantly know where it is from being in the original game because at, later on in the end game, if you beat all like the hardest arena challenges, you get like all these equipment, and every time there's equipment. Uh, you mastered it. You get a piece of key item. It's like, oh, this is a key. This is a goblin tablet. This is a rope. It's like, what the hell is this for? And you're like, if you play the original, you you already know what is that used for, where that secret room is, and you go there, and there's another secret boss there. So yeah, I feel and, like and, this is a very tense package, right? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's it's like a great deal too. Like it's uh, it's like what ten bucks, and you get a lot, a lot of 
content out like of this it actually feels like a 1.5 game it's like it's the base game with a new twist and you mm-hmm. get more than what you pay for it's like this is an awesome deal and i think there's also like there's like a, a, a like a main story like end to it and i think there's like a post game as well i believe yes uh, basically when you end like the base game then it will say, oh, this takes place somewhere in between. It's like, we, we recommend that you beat the original game before you go further, uh, or else you might get spoiled. Then after that, it'll take place after the main game, after the original, and you're like, oh. Oh, that's interesting. So there's, like, like, there's even like, like a sequel element to it, I guess, yeah. because there'll be events that happen after everything's yeah. done in the, in the base game. Okay, interesting. So you meet like some characters that you never even get to meet in the original, and it's like, who are these people? And I'm curious where they go. But like, I, I think this DLC is about 25 hours long, uh, 12 for like just the base game, and probably 25 you're like a completionist that wants everything. Because I, I, I love this game. You know, everybody that I recommend this to all went for the platinum from the original. <laughs> like, oh, it's like I'll try this out. They get addicted to it. Next thing you know, they get the platinum trophy. You know, or equivalent to a platinum trophy. Yeah. Steam. I was gonna say I'm not. I didn't know this was available on PlayStation. Oh <laughs> no, it's it's, it it's only available now on 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 PC, and the the only other uh, platform that Astley Revision has been released to is Nintendo Switch. But this Cave of Phantom Mist DLC is gonna come to Switch later, so it's not out there now. It'll come sometime in, in the near future. Um. But yeah, I mean, for people who wanted to play more Astalibra, this this is a very good package. I'm sure people who wanted more Astalibra already probably got the DLC. Like, it's interesting because this game has like found its own success as well. Like, since the release of the Cave of Phantomus DLC, the like the Astalibra has reached a new 24 hour concurrent peak uh, on Steam, uh, thanks to the DLC. And just to to uh, provide context. Uh, to access the DLC, you set it as like a launch option from the base game. So, any any time or, or players that like boot up the game, it would feed into like what Steam charts would consider as the main game. So, even if they're playing as the DLC, that still all feeds into the same number uh, on Steam charts because it's still using that same library entry of Asset Libre Revision. So, it seems like it's off to a great start. People seem to you know have nothing but <laughs> great things to say about it as long as they know that it's a roguelike structure. And not throw it off being like, oh, is there a bug that like my level keeps getting reset? You know? <laughs> it's like, oh no, that's not a bug. Um And that's great, you know, it's it's really cool to like I like I I still really look back fondly on like my interview with Keizo, the developer of Astalibra. And it's really great to see that he he's been finding once again more success with this DLC. And seeing it like you know that of this DLC was like a like a mini side story DLC before like in the original 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 version of Vast Libra, but th- now like he like kind of filled it out in really smart ways, to, like really fi- provide a more full complete package that like you really feel like you're getting money your money's worth out of it, and that's great, it's great. So it's cool to see you know it's it's finding success uh, in its own way. And I should know this, but I don't. But when is this coming out on Switch? Uh, there's no release date for the for uh, for the, the DLC's release date yet on Switch. Astelia Re- Revision is already out on Switch now, but the DLC, there's no release date for it. Gotcha. Uh, I'm just going to say, there's only like one nitpick I have with this game. They mm-hmm. need more costumes. <laughs> it's like, okay, so one of the things about this game is that uh, the main character, um, when she changes her 
uh, armor, she doesn't change her appearance, right? She only wears shoulder pads. That's her only armor, right? Shoulder pads, shield, and your sword, right? And she can buy costumes from this one shopkeeper, the one that sells dresses in, in the original game. Like, she, in the original game, you know, you know, it doesn't sell anything to that main character from what I recall, right? But here you get to buy costumes and stuff. And all the costumes are just like, like characters that you know from the original game just to switch to what they wear, right? So, I, I wish there was like a little bit more costumes to play around with, but it's like, yeah, I guess that's that is what it is. I guess, right? I mean, if you're if you're if it's if it's if it's if it's between making a better game versus better costumes, you know, I I'll, I'll take the better gameplay over like you know more costumes than anything. But who knows? You know, like like once again, case like Ask the Libra is pretty is mostly a solo indie dev game yeah some, I, I, I don't really expect much but it's like you know eight dollars this is more than what i bargained for this is the greatest deal in history okay <laughs> the greatest deal in history <laughs> um yeah it, it, it reminds like, me of, like those dlcs when the dlc is like so worth it that you just like i don't know what you call those kind of dlcs like a very good package the greatest deal in history all right there we go. But yeah, um, you guys have anything uh, more to say about the Cave of Phantomist? I think that I, I'm still, you know, making my way through it. I've been getting sidetracked by other stuff. I do you want to play it more? I think that covers it, I think. Yeah. All right. The third game that we have listed to talk about here is a late edition that um, James put on the list. And it's a game that we talked about. It's kind of surprise announcement. Uh, port a week or two ago, and that is the original Dragon Quest Builders going to PC. So, James, you put up a quick written preview up on the site talking about the PC release, but well, uh, not, not, to... a, not a preview, but yeah, I did put out like a feature kind of talking about the uh, PC uh, version and whatnot. Not a not a full review, though I did put like uh, 15, 20 hours into it, and I've played the game before. Um, so I guess what I'll say is, is that if you've never played Dragon Quest Builders 1, this is the best way of playing it. It's really, really weird it took this long for it to come out on PC, considering it what its inspiration is. It's it's just very weird that it took I, this I guess long. to provide context, right, like, uh, for a long time now, the, the sequel, Dragon Quest Builders 2, released on PC several years ago, and it's just now that like the first game is finally out on PC out of nowhere. Like it's like almost like a surprise announcement of like, oh, you're you're going back and releasing the first game. That's that's cool for archival purposes. That's also weird because by and large the general sentiment is two is just the better game all over, hands down. Too. And it is. It's like if you if you want something that's more like a, a proper Dragon Quest game, then Builders 2 is definitely the better one to go to. And uh, Builders 1 is still probably worth playing, but it's also like very hard to kind of justify it if you've already played 2. Just to me, because it's like, yeah. To me, this mostly feels like just Square Enix just being like, let's just put another one of our catalog games on Steam. They, I'm going to guess they probably didn't have excellent high expectations for its pr performance in terms of like sales and whatnot. But I guess I just took an opportunity like, Hey, we could port this game. So why not? 
I mean, yeah, the timing just, isn't ideal at all, it, but it's just so weird to me because it's like I can so like looking at, at a like historical data, I can understand why out of all of like Square Enix's franchises, Dragon Quest like, but very specifically, Dragon Quest spinoffs are like the main thing that Square Enix will eventually port to PC, like no matter what. I remember that Dragon Quest Heroes one. I don't think. Was it one or two that didn't get ported? I know, like, one of them got ported to PC and then the other one didn't. But some some really important context is that a lot of these, like, these days, a lot of the time, like, Square Enix doesn't release their games day and date with PC. Uh, it looks like both Heroes games are on PC. Oh, they are? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I'm not sure if one was a later port then, but it's like, that's the thing with Square Enix is that sometimes we're so inconsistent on when games will come to pc so sometimes like how many people outside of this podcast know that neo the world ends with you is available on steam like every time i bring up that that game came out on steam and like peaked at like just a bit above like 200 concurrent players people are like wait it's on pc which is wild because like if you look like historically dragon quest 11's localization released day and date on pc and did incredible numbers for the time. Like, peaked at, like, 11,000 players, which six years ago, when that game first came out in America, like, in the West, that, like, peak concurrent players was way bigger than if you had a game that hit that number now, because Steam itself has gotten so much bigger. And it's just... I'm glad this game got ported, but it feels like something that should have happened even before Builders 2 got ported. It should have happened in, like, 2018, 2019. Just so Oddly enough, Chow, I don't know if I'm crazy. I probably am, but whenever I think of Dragon Quest Builders, I think about all the staff members from the from the Builders team that went over to the, the Titan Studio BB. That was back, like, in 2019, and, like, they have yet to, like, ship a game. They're still working on that. I, that, I, that, I that, only that, remember that. that story. I, yeah, you told me that many times ago. I was like, "Oh, they're going to go there." It's like they must be doing something big. But where is this? Yeah, it's, they're still, work, they're still working. That that, uh, what's <laughs> her name? Kazuya Nino. Yeah, uh, Kazuya Nino. He was also uh, basically the, in a sense, I don't know if this is an exaggeration or not, but he was instrumental in like the very first Etrian Odyssey games. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, and, and like, and, like even beyond because you know you had like. The scenario writer for both builders games also, you know, joined Studio BB. Um, who was uh, Koya Sukuda, Sukada, sorry. And then you had uh, the art director on like Builders Two, um, Yoshikazu Takinochi, also joined the Studio BB. It's like it's like a lot of like key individuals from the builders team, like kind of just went over to Taiwan Studio BB, and then we have yet to, you know, we're still waiting. For, for them to cook with this Fate Extra remake that's been MIA for how many years now? We're just waiting. Didn't didn't we just recently get some more information for it though? Um, they showed like a teaser for it like late last year. It was like uh maybe barely ten to fifteen seconds. Like basically saying we're still working on this game. It's like cool. I, it's like it's like very late last year or like very early this year. Yeah, something like it- that. It's like they're you still working. Te- yeah, you, you say te- you say teaser, but they did show at least like some engine like uh, like footage or something, if I remember correctly. Be- okay, so very very like early on in development, they showed like very like early prototype footage, and I was like, it's it's still very much in development. And like and then the and then the little teaser thing in a tweet was like 
the most recent thing that we saw of it. So it's not like the it's not like the entire project is like you know dead in the water. They're still clearly working on it. It's just like man, I really wish we we like saw something like officially new, like a new trailer or a new like anything of like just new info about the game because I'm really looking forward to like seeing with what they do with it because. Fate Extra is a very divisive game. Some people really like it. Some people say it's the worst game ever. So I'm really interested to see what what the remake does for it. And that also covers all of our article shoutouts by the two games that we talked about at the start of the podcast here. We've got the Banishers Review and the Dragon Quest Builders PC kind of look in for that release uh, up on the website at rpgsite.net. Did we ever have any other games we wanted to talk about before we go into the new slate? Um, not at the moment. Uh, stay tuned, I guess. <laughs> yeah, stay tuned. Uh, it's a busy couple weeks. I mean, it's been a busy couple weeks, but that's going to continue at that pace for a while. The main headline here, I'm sure most people listening to this is aware, but it's just something we've been uh, kind of looking forward to and expecting a date and announcement anytime, and we finally got it. And that is that NIS America has formally announced that the worldwide release of East 10 Nordics, it'll be releasing in North America and Europe this fall for PlayStation 4 and 5, Nintendo Switch, and PC. And alongside of this, they gave us an announcement trailer and a press release about describing the game. Of course, the game has been out in Japan since last September, so those who have followed Japanese media or potentially imported it themselves kind of know what the package is and what we're looking at. But uh, obviously, NIS America is divulging the information as if, you know, this is a brand new title um, that no one's seen before. But yeah, we finally got a date coming out this fall. Not a specific date, but we know it'll be out this year. I, mean, so I have, it's, I have it's, two it's, comments. I have two okay, comments. go for it. One, if you go to wishlist this game on Steam, make sure you get the right version. Two, um, to explain, Clouded Leopard's also releasing this on Steam a little earlier than NAS America is. That version won't have English, so don't, don't wishlist that version. It probably won't be as yeah. good of a port either. Um, because yeah, yeah, yeah. the uh, Steam port is being handled by PH3, which is Durante, who's done a lot of these ports, and they're excellent. Um, two, this will be a roughly a year turnaround, which is actually fast for yeah, Falcon, I mean, relatively. It's one of those things. It's one of those. It's like it's like yes, it, it was it was expected for it to have, get a Western release eventually, but like I think the the surprise thing is like it's relatively a fast turnaround because people are expecting this after like say Kuro like Kuro no Kiseki, yeah, Kuro no Kiseki too, like. Because if they're to follow like the timeline of, uh, like release dates or releases from uh, Falcom in Japan, like this would come out, you know, theoretically after Kurunagiseki two in the West. I expected this before Kuro. Well, I I didn't fully expect this before Kuro two, but I definitely saw a situation like this being possible. Just because I know that like inside like NIS America, they have two separate teams working, like. They basically have a dedicated trails team, and then like East is like not necessarily the same people. So I, may... I th- I th- for, for this, I think it's a for for the average fan who like follows this. It's like this is a nice surprise for them, and that's cool for them. But like, yes, that you, you have you can look forward to this like way earlier than you what you probably may have thought based on. Like, I, I don't were, think they're gonna copy that now. Use a business tactic again, right? Where they sell the Japanese version early, and you can just wait for the English patch later, right? Uh, Kuro uh, is they, doing it, that, but yeah, it, it, it seems it, like it, they won't do that because there is no Steam Japanese version of East. So yeah, apparently yeah. the reason why they're not doing that is because uh, for visibility on Steam, 
it unless you like marked the Japanese version as like early access and then when the uh game fully released you marked it as like coming out of early access it messes with the steam like new and trending algorithm so for like uh, Nayuta I do understand that it made it so that the game had much less reach organically on steam than if they had just released it directly in english so yeah, it sound- yeah. Dayuno is like the experiment that went horribly wrong. Uh, well, they're for they're continuing that with Kuro, or at least yeah, and, and, yeah. They already that. committed. Yeah, they committed to that with Kuro one, so they're yeah, they're sl- they're locked into that. So the, you could probably expect abysmal like PC sales for Kuro one uh, later this year as well, because it's, it's it's not like people are actively avoiding. It's like they don't fucking know that it's out, right? Um, yeah. I mean, it helps. I mean, like some of the things, like uh, this is like a different example. But when it comes to like writing the guides, I do. It's like the one of the reason why it always remains like a top in the chart is because it's always listed on the tops, right? If it's gone from that list, the numbers would drastically lower. Yeah, if you're, if you're not, if you're not, if you're not at least like visible on like Steam's front page for like a day, people won't know that you're actually out. That's kind of the reality of it. People don't. A lot of people don't look any further than the Steam front page of like what games are out. You know. And why should they, to be honest? Yeah, they're not going to go dig out for it. But they'll be like, Harry's like, oh, this is trending. It's like, what is this? And like, oh, Anyways, yeah. we've talked about East 10 a lot. Uh, James has even imp- basically reviewed it. Um, that it's, you know, the action RPG, no party system, maybe a little bit more of the character action stylings between the two characters. Uh, I hear a lot of good things about it. Uh, I know James was maybe a, uh, one of the things that he was not so hot on is maybe like environmental variety, but otherwise seems like it's a pretty solid time. We're looking forward to it. Yep. Hopefully the PC yeah. port is good. Hopefully, I mean, hopefully it, it releases in a, hopefully it releases in like in a, in a pretty good time frame where it's not too close to like say things like metaphor, for example. Hopefully we don't get like this weird yeah. situation where like things are clumped together again. The other announcement that we have which is also about ease. I think I might hand this off to Adam because he just did a lot of research uh, kind of explaining this, and you've kind of dug in and put all the facts together. Tell me about the original ease, Adam. Ease won, Ancient Ease vanished. Okay, so... <laughs> I don't know about this. You might have heard of... You <laughs> might have heard of Project Egg. No? Okay, so Project Egg is a kind of an initiative from a Japanese publisher called D4 Enterprises. And what they do is they basically license or get licensing rights to a bunch of very old Japanese retro games. Like we're talking like 80s and 90s era Japanese RPGs and other games. And they have various emulators that you can basically buy these games through from D4's website and play them. Uh, it's, it's only in Japanese. Like this is for like Japanese audiences. Of course, anyone can buy them, but... Um, I guess I was on their website earlier today. They have more than a thousand titles you can buy through this Project Egg. Uh, I don't know if that's exaggerated or in any way, but they say more than a thousand. Um, wait, wait, you ne- could buy a thousand of these titles on the Switch, though? No, I was getting to that. Um, so the Project yeah. Egg is a PC download thing. Now, the Switch version of Project Egg is called Egg Console. Got it? The Switch version of Project Egg is called Egg Console. Okay. okay. So Egg Console. You're like, you're like tapping your like, desk. It's like, I got it. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Project or Egg Console is a uh, basically the Switch version of this co- publisher's uh, basically catalog, and they actually just recently started 
uh, putting out these games onto Switch. And kind of the interesting thing here is that these are on the American and Western storefronts with English descriptions and English titles and everything, and you can buy them. Um, it's right like now, a, it's like a virtual console. Yes, pretty much. So the way I framed it in our news post is the original East One Ancient East Vanished is now available for Nintendo Switch eShop via the Egg Console PC88 emulator. So it is an emulator. Um, which, you know, a lot of these virtual console digital games are, in a sense. Um, and so what that means is uh, it's... Um, what that means is this game, this original version of East, never released in English. Uh, the version of East that did come out in English came out a few years later, and that was for the PC Engine version, not the PC88 version. Um, so this is the original East, and what that means is, is the game itself is in Japanese. So it's effectively like a digital import. You're buying a Japanese game to play, but like all some of the, like the how-to stuff in the emulator itself and some of the supporting materials, those will be in English, but the game itself is in Japanese. But you can buy it with, you know, American dollars for six, I think it's 649 on Switch right now. You can buy the original East and play it in Japanese. Um, uh, this is the ninth, there are nine games. So I said before there are a thousand through this Project Egg service, there are currently nine on Switch, at least on the English storefront. I don't know if there's disparity between storefronts, but at least on the English storefront, there are nine games you can buy uh, right now. And they these only just started like last October. So it's only been a few months. Like the Hydlide is on there. Um, another game from Falcom is on there and that's the original Xanadu. You can buy it, the PC-88 version. Um, again, it's a Japanese game, Japanese text. It's got some English text in it also, just by happenstance, but you can buy it and you can play it right now. I, I love that uh, with the Xandu thing that brought uh, like uh, Sakurai coming out to basically tweet saying, yeah, I was the eighth person in the world to beat the original Xandu. And it's like, dude, how do you get, how do you keep getting even more cool? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that guy has like the biggest flex card. Yeah. Dude, uh, like, uh, like you, you think you're good at video games and you're nothing compared to Sakurai, <laughs> dude. Like, Anyways, I just legend. think this whole concept is cool. Like, hey, yes. some company just decided this isn't Falcom putting it up there. Obviously, Falcom gave them permission. Uh, like, hey, take our old game, you know, run it through your emulator. And they even have some like you can even I think I think you can even like flip through some of like the original like scans of the manual, which is pretty cool. Uh, oh, cool. And like play it. Right now, for less than, you know, for the price of lunch or whatever, you can buy the original Zanadu or East One and play it right now in Japanese. Um, I actually did buy this and I played it uh, very briefly. Now, in my mind, so I played East Book not too long ago, well, a couple years ago, which is the PC Engine version, which that's also an old game. That came out in 1990, I think, in English. And I I actually like that version a lot. And I got to remind myself, oh, yeah, this version here is even older than that by a few years. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah. The original PC-88 version of East. Um, And it's just the first East. It's not East 1 and 2. A lot of those games are almost always connected nowadays, but this is just the first game. Um, So, but... Yeah, I'm I'm looking at the the, the D4 Enterprise, like, like, a lot like entry in the eShop and like they they have the nine titles there in the in the actual American eShop. Yeah. And like and, and this initiative like is fairly recent. They started doing this at uh, around October of last year. Yeah. With the release of Relics uh uh so it's like it's kind of like I really hope they really go for it and start like bringing like a load of the, of these uh the of their library that they were able to store on PC into like this uh, Switch eShop ecosystem. And like and and, and the gold 
ideally somehow somewhere deals are made for them to start like kind of releasing these on steam as well which would be really fucking cool too there's two games i probably really want on here i want Valus 2 and then the other one i want is emerald dragon oh, i'll yeah, try yeah. the yeah, i want to try the pc like last, or two years ago <laughs> yeah but you played the pc engine version you didn't play the oh. pc <laughs> 88 version yeah the, the pc 88 is like such a treasure trove so mm-hmm. i mean it I hope this initiative starts like going like rolling out into like even more platforms beyond the eShop. But yeah. also but also but also like the like the the prospect of like turning my Switch into just like a like a PC eighty eight emulator heaven is also kinda Because <laughs> I, I hate using yeah, PC ninety eight emulators to be honest with you. And mm-hmm. if this is like a streamlined experience of using it, I'll take oh, yeah. it. Because oh, yeah. when you use it on the like your actual PC, it's like now the game's too fast because you set the game to thirty hertz. So you have to change it to like sixteen hertz, and you're like, wait, this is too slow. It's like, what is the correct speed for this game? You're not quite sure because you never played the original or something. Right? Yeah, I hear that 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 shit gets finicky. And it's like, oh, it's like a more streamlined experience to get these games. I'll, I'll pay whatever. I'll, yeah, these I'll, are pretty reg- these are pretty agreeable prices to at least for US. This is like six forty a night, as we mentioned uh, for these titles, and that's not too bad. And I remember Virtual Console years ago had a few just like digital imports as well. And I just thought that was always just cool, like a storefront. Yeah. And uh, I know like on old PlayStation Network, you could buy like the Japanese PlayStation games and play them with an English account, but you'd have to like make a Japanese account to get them. Um, yeah, I did that. Yeah, I mean, I did that too. Had, like, I was actually just catalog. testing. I was actually just testing out uh, uh, literally literally last night literally last night i was actually checking out something on my playstation 3 still have it hooked up um but you had to create a whole separate account to get it and probably get like a japanese psn card or whatever um but just the fact that this is just on the american eShop and you can just buy it with i literally bought it with my paypal funds uh it's just very convenient so i like it i hope more companies do the same the ps5 could use more classics so yeah uh we'll see what they I probably won't play East One to completion, uh, but I messed around with it a bit, and it's just really cool to you know just to have that available and accessible. I, I think so. I think there was also like uh, was it, I think the East Two has a more conclusive ending in the original version on the PC eighty eight version. You get to see Adel kissing his love interest. Oh, that, that, that's the only, is that is that what makes it conclusive? I, I think so. Okay, now he's not off to adventures, being <laughs> shipwrecked all the time. I was about to say, like, wait, does East 2 not have a conclusive ending? Oh, it depends on if he kisses Lilia or not. Okay. <laughs> More conclusive, okay? Those are it for, like, the major announcements of the week. We have a couple games that have, uh, upcoming games that have new updates and trailers as they go into their release windows. The first one is back to one of the major March releases, uh, Unicorn Overlord. Uh, Atlas and Vanillaware have been kind of leapfrogging like written newsletters and then these video Yosef's training guides. So this week we kind of had one new of each. The new Yosef video is called, I said Yosef, Joseph, I'm not sure how that's pronounced, uh, Joseph's Guide to Training. And what this basically is, is last week we talked about how there was a newsletter talking about promotion, stages, EXP, training, those sorts of things in a written form. And now we basically have a three-minute kind of in-universe session where Joseph is training the main character about what this looks like. So it it talks about promotion. It talks about how you have a currency called honors, which is used to promote characters uh, that you earn from quests. 
talks about how you have like a little bit of the itemization in terms of items that give exp items that boost stats things like that uh it also talks about and again this is if it sounds like repeat it's because it is because a lot of this was covered in written form prior but those who want the visual aid can kind of get more of it here on the video uh and they did talk about how there are repeatable stages called auxiliary stages so that you don't need to worry about a limited exp pool if you want to use multiple characters or or change out your approach or whatever you can always do the auxiliary stages to to get training or items or treatises or things like that and then there it looks like there's going to be one more joseph training video in the upcoming weeks about uh battles which will likely recap what the written newsletter for this week was which was tactics priority battle stages etc uh, it talked a little bit about how the the overworld map and how that is tra uh, like traversed and um, the real time aspect of moving characters along the map and en engaging in battle. Talks about how you know engaging in battle will use stamina. Talks about how you use valor as kind of an in battle currency to deploy units and use skills. And how basically there's like a, a gambit system, which I know we've already made that comparison because um, it showed up earlier. But there's a nice, there's a cool little gambit system about how. Characters will use either active or passive abilities based on how you prioritize their tactics, which seems like it could always be neat, uh, but almost essential in this game based on how they're framing it. In that your character, I mean, will yeah, not use you you have to use abilities. it, or else, or, or, yeah. or else, yeah. So I guess pe people need to understand this is this is not like we've I probably hammered this in before of like this is not your typical vanillaware game where it's not like Muramasa or Odin Spear. It's not like a, you're actively inputting. But in inputs in the middle of combat to execute moves, it's not like a real-time action game where you execute moves uh, in a side-scroller fashion like those games. Um, There's a game where you have to like pre-configure your unit's commands, so when battle starts, they will execute these commands, and so you're like putting if-then statements. So, like for example, one of the examples given is like if you put a healing, uh, you input a healing spell at like the top of a unit's priority uh, list because it, it executes down by priority. So the highest command that you give them is the most prioritized, and then the subsequent commands are lesser prioritized as the, 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 the lower you go. So if you put a healing spell at the top, the very first thing they're going to put for is uh, a healing spell. Okay, I will only do a healing spell uh, if like a player unit, allied player unit is like less than 50% because you pre-configured that. So if it'll check for that, okay, if it if uh if an ally has less than 50% HP, I will cast a ceiling spell because they are low on health. And then the next thing they'll do is like, okay, what's the next thing I do? Oh, it says to go at uh use this skill on this enemy with this certain HP threshold if you configured that. And then after that, it's like, okay, what do I do next after that? So it very much battles play out automatically you're, because of how you configured that and uh, that unit's command list already so you're programming much like you said a com a gambit system so it's not like some people may still be under the impression that like this is like a real-time action game which is it's not <laughs> it's not that's just the reality of it um i also kind of realized when i say gambit system i kind of have this idea that everyone knows what i mean but a gambit system yeah. was a system in final fantasy 12 and it's been used both prior and since in different names but colloquially gambit system where it's a it's a series of basically if then statements for characters will take specific actions in a specific order of priority depending on conditions being met so when i say gambit system that's what i'm specifically referring to 
but yeah. And I, th- I, I think this is really going to be fun to mess around with because there's so many like different class types and different specialties of like what each of these classes excel in. So there's going to be a, li- a large, wide variety of tactics that that'll be open to you, and it's kind of like up to you to figure out how, exactly how you want to configure squads and what sort of like class compositions you want a, a squad to form and how they synergize with one another based on their uh, commands you used. Of course, like you know, there's an optimize button, like that'll feel overwhelming. But uh, since I'm I have brain rot, I have to like configure everything manually, so I'll do that. Um, but I think I think a lot of like what what uh, people really liked about this update is like the is like the some of the new characters shown like a good majority of them were from non-human races. Like, there's a lot of beast race uh, beast characters shown. Like you have uh, Morard, who's like a big buff lion dude who has his chest on a, has a gigantic axe. And then you have like Dina, who's like you've, you've seen this character before in screenshots, where it's like a huntress, uh, like a fox girl with a spear. And then the the talk of the town apparently is this uh, sophisticated uh, owl lady named Ramona, uh, who wields a staff, is like a chiefess of uh, of the owl bloodline, wears glasses. And it's just like it's just like that's like that's cool, you know. That's a great design for like a fantasy setting. She is clearly bumping it, you know. It's uh, it's great. But yeah, it looks like before release, we'll at least get one more video uh, talking about. Uh, it'll be cool to see the battle description and tactics in in a video format, even if the yeah. Joseph training kind of distills it down a bit. But we'll at least have that, and then it'll release uh, not like two weeks into March, right? Is it March eighth? March eighth, yeah. So yeah, we're, we're about, about three weeks out uh, for it. It's just around the corner. It'll it'll sneak up. And a, and a few outlets were able to go hands on. Uh, we don't have one on our website, but we'll just shout out our friends at RPG Fan. They've got a hands on preview for Unicorn Overlord over at their site. So go check it out. The other game that we have an update for is a late February release that's coming out in just like ten days or so. And this is uh, Sheer and the Wanderer. Mystery Dungeon of Serpent Coil Island. Uh, they've been doing a handful of these releases, just kind of doling out new little gameplay updates and uh, little dossiers on individual monsters. So the gameplay update here uh, is a little bit more simple. It's talking about using a peach bun to transform into a monster. Can you transform into a monster in any of the other games, or is this new to this this entry? I haven't played any of the other games, so... Remember if you can. I don't think so, unless I'm misremembering. I'm pretty sure you couldn't, unless it was like in a much earlier Sheeran. Yeah, and then and then the monsters that they show here are uh, they have one called the Hoppin' Batter, which is like a cricket with a cricket bat. Is how I'm wearing samurai armor. That's that's how I'm interpreting yeah. this, which is kind of fun. That's a fun. That, that that's a fun way to describe it. Yes. <laughs> And then uh, a, a group of enemies that are like Power Rangers. They're like ninjas. Hell like yeah. Coordinated outfits or Axum Rangers. I, I, I love whenever like a, a RPG kind of gives a nod to like Super Sentai stuff in a really fun mm-hmm. way. So. And then there's a, a chicken family where you have like buff forearmed hens and little chicklets. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just some fun monster uh, illustrations and things like that. And a few details about... Well, uh, one thing I can actually... It's funny because uh, during the preview events, uh, those aren't two separate monsters for the chickens. Uh, no, basically, once you deal enough damage to the big chicken, then they shrink to the little chicken and try and run away. <laughs> That's kind of fun. Well, I'll explain why it's a single piece of artwork then. Yeah. 
And that kind of covers it for game updates. So a little bit thin uh, this week, but we have a lot of upcoming dates. So we'll go through that before we go into the dates. Here's one thing that I think was all but confirmed until the last couple of days where it was confirmed, confirmed. And that is that Grand Blue Fantasy Relink uh, has joined the many RPGs of the first part of the year to hit 1 million units sold. Of course, Grand Blue Fantasy Relink being on PlayStation 5 and PC. So obviously a big success. We've already talked about how it already has like outpaced most other Japanese published RPGs on the platform. I forget like where we ended up leaving that off. Like it was above Dark Souls, but below Elden Ring. It's kind of like where it ended up, but still did very well on platform, did very well overall, selling a million copies and having a having a good um, uh, critic review as well, as well as just like word of mouth. Just seems, seems to be a big success for um, side games. Yeah, I, I, Grand Blue Relic is, I, I've mentioned it before, but it's like one of my favorite modern success stories in the industry, like modern industry. Uh, it's just, it's it's an incredible like, just debut from this, that side game Sosaka team, just, and just to see it like thrive, like it was, it, it's a, it's a game. It's like no one knew how well this game was gonna do at all. It was a total question mark, like because of how long it's been. It was in development. It's just like you don't really see many projects like reach this level of success after like a a very complicated development cycle, um, you know. So it, and they basically had to start from scratch. After they um, separated from Platinum Games, and like they used some of the core foundations that Platinum Games laid out, but for the most part, they built that game again from the ground up, and had to. And as they were doing it, they had to form a new development team. So they were like recruiting people as they were developing the game too, which is incredibly difficult to do. I imagine. I. Yes, but I think maybe important context is that Sai Games Osaka is literally like 10 minutes away from Platinum's office, and a lot of the people in the credits listed under Sai Games Osaka used to work at Platinum. So I don't think the... I, uh, here's the thing. Even, even, if you, even if you had like the, the, the range of that, they were still recruiting people mid-development. It's not just like a, a straight, oh, okay, we got your people, and then we can all work yeah, together yeah, pretty yeah. well. Yeah, I'm not disagreeing with that. I'm just saying that it it wasn't as extreme of a shift as I think people believe it was, just based off of the full context. That's all I'm saying. I don't, it I don't was know an what eight that, out of ten extreme rather than I, ten out of ten extreme. I don't know what that. I don't know exactly what that means. Uh, I'll be honest. I just don't, I don't know how to interpret that. I'll, I'll like especially when you think about like the credits of Relic and like how there was no mention of platinum games at all and there's no platinum games logo i think i think the i think the development of relink is kind of spelled out uh, like the the story of relink is in that it's in those credits when you think about the names and you think about what's credited in that i think a lot of the the game's development is kind of illuminated if you're able to read between the lines of the, the credits of that game um so i so i don't know exactly how to you know interpret what you just said but uh, to me I, I I praise them because it's like it's an incredibly tough process to tough that out and come and come out and be as successful as they as they were um, from the get go. Especially yeah, in this I'm glad days. for it too because I, oh. I I'm just tired tired of everything being like in a mobile game. It's like it needs some kind of thing to outreach its audience, and, and this is tool to it. I would say. Um, the other thing I want to say is, do you remember Project Awakening? Do you remember that I side game yeah. that show uh-huh. that thing? Do you, what do you think that's going to happen now to that thing? Do you think we're going to see some of that 
maybe I don't, I don't know that's the thing like doesn't, they, 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 doesn't it have a name now i forget i was no. trying to, i was trying to look this up so it was originally so. shown in 2018 then it went silent until 2021 when they showed it again it was still project awakening at that time i don't know if it's been seen since i don't remember oh yeah, yeah. for some reason i was thinking like it got a, like a new name or a new product but no i must have been thinking something else it's still project awakening yeah, I, I don't know where that is. It's still uh, supposedly it's still a development, but I have no idea. Um, I also know I have, that like, I have one uh, normie question. Yeah, the the mobile game is available in English, but not officially in the West. Is that kind of where that's at? Yeah, they basically so, translate the entire game into English for their Southeast Asia fans, which is kind of like Malaysia. Uh, to to kind of to, so to put it in plain terms. Yeah, yes, like you, you can access the game. You can access the game anywhere in the world because it's a browser game. You can just like input a link into your browser and you can play the game because it's just all through your browser. And there's an English text option that you can use that you can access within that browser game to turn all the text into English. So but there but there's no like official release of it in the West that there's like it's not in the App Store for Apple or Google Play or anything like that. And and although and all those Things are just basically interfaces with the mobile game. They're not like a separate APK thing. For, to, yeah, it's you're not just like a... playing a fucking web page browser game. That's really it. Uh, it is the strongest suit, and it's also its weakest link. Weakest link yeah. being like it's spaghetti code because it's all in browser. So the code's like full of limitations. It's like how the game works. It's kind of buggy. It's kind of you know, music kind of loops all over the place, but because it's also a browser game, you can play it on like any device. You could probably play it on your toaster or your fridge because I've seen someone play it on the fridge. It's also it's also a unique way to play the game because like when you think about browser games, you think about like the Java Shockwave days. Uh, while re- I know a lot of people on Relink like actually have like dedicated like bookmark times for like every single menu in that game. Yeah, uh, they basically press on a on like a bookmark to go to a boss instantly or something like yeah. that. And because it's a browser game, you can hit the refresh button, which is a lot of people do. They hit the refresh button and they skip all the animations. Like, oh, that two minutes of animation, I skipped it, and now I get to the next turn. I can do DPS more faster, which yeah. is kind of like how you play the mobile game. And one of the funniest thing is like the voice actor Yuichi Nakamura, who's actually like a very big whale and loves playing the gacha game. And I think one time the producers asked him to like demonstrate this new boss, and he just kept hitting refreshing. <laughs> I don't, That's and awesome. The producers like kind of tap his shoulders, like, "Can you stop doing that? We're trying to show off our game here." I was like, "Oh, sorry, but this is how I play." <laughs> That's so good. So um, it's like, yeah, this is kind of like a, a problem with Grand Blue Vision because everyone just keep refreshing and they don't know what the fuck killed them. They don't want to steal animation, right? Yeah. So. No. Uh, so it's interesting to see where they're going to go, where, where they'll go, especially with uh, the ongoing support of Relink, you know. So, you know, congratulations to the director, Kaji, producer Fukuhara, and uh, Side Games America CEO Okubo on the success, along with like, you know, the development team, because I think this is. Once again, this is nowhere near guaranteed at all. This is definitely by by even before release. It's like I don't know, I don't know yeah, about this. They were pretty tame on those DLCs. Like there was only like two little things coming, but now it's kind of like oh, this is this hit. So there was probably a lot more things going on their way now. Yeah, so we'll see. Yeah, pretty hyped about it. Yeah, that's that's great. You know, I'm uh, relink. Has made me a Grand Blue fan, not of the browser game, but like I was just like the relink. You know, I'm a Grand Blue fan in that respect. 
somehow it did, it made a miracle happen. All right, the rest of the podcast, we're going to go through some dates. Uh, we have a date that's relatively uh, short upcoming. The upcoming release for The Thaumaturge was originally planned to release on February 20th, so just within this next upcoming week. Uh, the team at Fool's Theory, who we've brought up at uh, a couple times the last couple podcasts, uh, just needs a little bit of extra time for polish, and they've decided to... Uh, Actually, they specifically call out a better release window window and taking February's busy launch period into account. So they're moving the thaumaturge from February 20th back to March 4th. It's uh, you know, I, I it's it's hard to release a game right now. Uh, it's a very crowded time frame. So hopefully March 4th is a better time frame. It's kind of it's kind of a weird situation now. Where originally this game was going to release before FF7 Rebirth. Now it's going to release after it, and now it's like releasing in that period between FF7 Rebirth. And Unicorn Overlord. Not necessarily that like the the target audiences will like overlap with each other because this seems to be like a very targeting to be targeting a different type of like I don't know RPG player. But still, like for people who like who like RPGs, it's just like I don't know. It's I hope it I hope it does well. You know. Well, with a game like F7 Rebirth, in in a lot of spaces, I won't say all of them, but a lot of spaces, it will crowd out other discussion even if it's not quite like an apples to apples comparison for genre of game. Yeah, just because in, just in terms of like YouTube front page, Steam front page. Well, exactly. We'll it's like, case, like, 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 especially like in March 4th, like, you know, you'll still get like a ton of like FF7 rebirth stuff. So I don't know. Hopefully this game doesn't get totally like forgotten by the wayside when it releases, I guess. Also releasing in early March, we've got a release date for. Blade Prince Academy coming out on PC. It was originally announced back in last summer, June 2023, and then it had a successful Kickstarter campaign uh, shortly thereafter. Also coming out in March, we got a release date for Outward, its port over to Nintendo Switch. Uh, this game released on PC back in 2019, and then late last year, it eventually made its way to consoles with its definitive edition. And then late last year, the studio at Nine Dots said that they were going to bring Outward to Switch in 2024. And now we just know that that date is March 28th. I did play this one. It's pretty fun, but again, just crowded time of the year. We have another April release coming up. This is a gothic horror RPG called Withering Rooms. Now, this one has been on Steam in early access since October of 2022 with, it seems, generally positive reviews. Not overwhelmingly so, but mostly positive. And then it'll also, on April 2nd, release its console versions for PlayStation 5 and Xbox Series. I think this is a really, like, uh, interesting-looking game. It's like a, it's like a side-scroller action RPG and has, like, a pretty like, heavy emphasis on, like, uh, builds for your character because the... You're going around this procedurally generated Victorian mansion, and the, and the developer has been very very active in like giving updates to like the status of the game. Like I even linked its like news page on Steam, on like all the additions. And for context, like the developer and publisher Moonless Wormless, that's a that's a solo solo indie dev uh, run. So this is gonna, hopefully going to uh, find its own success uh, when it releases and kind of like. I think about like Astalibra, you know, Keizo being a solo indie dev that like outsourced some or, or had collaborated with some of the creators, like Shigatake for like the art on the portraits, but for but like the core gameplay systems, that was all Keizo. So hopefully this game will like be like 
warmly received when it uh, receives a full release because I think I think the game actually looks really cool from the screenshots and like seeing the uh, the game in action in the trailer. Like I think this is it, it, I might like definitely give it a shot. I don't know if it's like on release day, but I'm definitely more interested in like you know giving this game a try. Its art style gives me like a little bit of early Resident Evil vibes. Not mm-hmm. not quite the same because this is like a side scroller, but a little bit of it. Mm-hmm. We do have one delay out of April. Um, we're going to see Neptunia Sisters versus Sisters. Its Xbox release was going to be on April 16th, and now it has been moved to May 21st. This is just said to ensure that the Xbox platform launches smoothly. So we'll have a May release for that. And I think that kind of covers us for release dates, unless I missed anything here. I so obviously, an already packed couple of months going ahead, and then just a few additions and shifts around there. Before we close out the podcast, we do have one other news that hit uh, you know our social feeds and all of our feeds over the last week, and that is the unfortunate passing of the Aid and Chronicle scenario writer Yoshitaka Murayama. Obviously, kind of the Suikoden founder did pass away on February sixth. So produced uh, Suikoden one and two, did some initial of the writing of Suikoden three. Obviously, kind of was going to be heading up the spiritual successor in Aiden Chronicle 100 Heroes, but unfortunately did pass away earlier this month. Yeah, and uh, decided, you know, do ongoing uh, complications with ongoing illness. I know, and it's it's incredibly unfortunate and very sad, you know. This this guy for people uh, who are fans of Japanese RPGs is a legend. You know, when you think about the first two Suikoden games, he was, uh, you know, Kind of the mastermind behind it, through the story behind those games, um, especially Suikoden Two, very very beloved entry in Suikoden. You know, he had headed that up, and whenever I think about, whenever I start, whenever I thought about Moriyama, when I first heard this news earlier this week, um, I think about the original Kickstarter campaign video of Aiden Chronicle Hundred Heroes, and like just being psyched about being able to get the opportunity um, to produce a successor to a series that he really really loved and um and by all accounts that kickstarter campaign years ago for a Uden chronicle broke records it was an incredibly successful kickstarter campaign um that just and I, that I, that kickstarter campaign is also what basically was proved the i guess the desire for these sorts of games that uh, allowed the kickstarters for the penny blood and arm fantasia to take place a couple right. of years later basically mm-hmm. other japanese creators from these classic franchises basically saying hey there's demand for this people want these sorts of things so it, it, it even like spurred konami i'm sure it factored into someone at uh, some extent you know it spurred konami to uh, embark on this hd rematch for so we could in one and two as well yeah um, it's the timing is so incredibly unfortunate. I just yeah. like he won't get to see his re- his new game release or the remasters of his classics coming out. It's like, yeah, and, and you just now it's just like kind of like putting it to a different perspective. Like you know, when you know if you if you plan on st- on playing Aiden Chronicle Hundred Heroes and the Wicked and One and Two HD remasters, like you know you 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 now it's hard to now that you like know this news and you know like the creator has passed away. 
uh, be, be, before being able to like witness like you know the reception to to these games that he's worked on. So you, it, for me, like when I play them this year, I'm going into it like in a way that like I feel like I have to like honor his memory. Not not to say peer pressured, but like looking at it like in that perspective, in that light of like okay, like what was like his vision uh, for you know Aiden Chronicle Hundred Heroes, for example. What did he want to achieve with this title? Sort of like a reverence to like work. I think I think, and I think that's like kind of like the best way to honor his memory is like, even if you end up disliking it, you should. I'm sure he would still like be like you know, please like give my game a try. That's what I what I think about it as like it's not like you're being peer pressured to like like it, but at least give it a shot and see if it's for you. And hopefully the team over at Five Hundred Five Games, you know calls that out and like gives them like a special call out for that you know in the memory of um, yeah yeah uh, I, I, so very heartbreaking it, it, it's like, honestly yeah, yeah i imagine it's like a pretty like stressful time for rabbit and bear studios because Moriyama was the head of that studio as well so so on on top of like you know shipping this upcoming rpg um they also have to think about like you know man obviously staff changes and how what who's who's the successor of that studio now how is that studio gonna like move forward from um you know best of luck to everyone did it involved you know obviously not only just in rabbit and bear studios and 505 games but also you know to the people who knew and loved moriyama uh from his personal life as well and then of course for many of us aiden chronicle 100 heroes is one that is circled on our calendar for an april release so you can definitely bet on us giving that game a very good look in once it releases in yeah. just a couple months. Yeah. And with that, we have reached the end of our planned itinerary for this episode of the Tetracast. So uh, you can find the Banishers Ghost of New Eden review, as well as the guide work that Adam has done up on the website, rpgsite.net. We also have James James's Dragon Quest Builders PC uh, look in up on the site as well. Of course, all the upcoming or sorry, recent releases, including Like a Dragon, Persona, uh, everything. We all have recent guides and note sheets up on the website for those as well, as well as all the news posts that we talked about. You should join our Discord at discord.gg slash RPG site. You can find RPG site on all the social media networks. You should be able to just type in RPG site and you should be able to find us. And we'll be back next week with another episode of the Chetracast. Let me look at our RPG list to kind of look ahead and see what we might be talking about. So the the, the Tetracrast? Tetracrast, yes. Okay. As an uh, improved, February... fascinating. So February 24th, you should be able to talk about... Uh... I'm not mm -hmm. sure. <laughs> Sheeran won't be quite out yet. Final Fantasy have I updated that now. list to have Palmaturge delayed? I forget. Uh, yes. Okay. That was coming So we out. got yeah, nothing we can talk about next week. Yeah, it would have been Thaumaturge, but it got delayed. You know. Um, maybe I should, I don't know. Maybe I should give Lost Epoch a shot. <laughs> I'm not sure. Maybe I should just give my backlog a shot. <laughs> no. There you you, Brian, you need to, to play Bandeltail. You're our League of Legends uh, expert now. Uh, apparently, apparently Paige is not well, uh, not, well, we'll see. Maybe we'll get Paige <laughs> on to talk about it. Time timing there is gonna be difficult with the time zone difference, but yeah, Battle Tale is coming out on the twenty first. But yeah, until you hear from us next time, stay safe and take care, and we'll talk to y'all later. <laughs>